0: Community organising is one of those phrases that is used a lot but is often not well understood. But anyone who's heard of organising has probably read the book Rules for Radicals by Saul Alinsky. Alinsky is widely regarded as the grandfather of community organising. In 1940, he established the Industrial Areas Foundation to expand the organising work he began in the back of the yard's neighbourhoods in Chicago. That network has extended and expanded across the world Few people have lived that journey, but today we are having a chat with one of them. Today we are speaking to the former co-director of the Industrial Areas Foundation, Ernie Cortez. Ernie trained with Alinsky and he worked with Ed Chambers and the 1970s IAF team to strengthen the IAF after Alinsky's death. He founded the West-Southwest Network of Broad-Based Organisations, beginning with COPS in San Antonio, which has expanded to at least 29 organisations across the region. Ernie has won a MacArthur Genius Award for his efforts. He continues to work as a mentor and acts as a special advisor to the West-Southwest IAF. The guy has read literally libraries of books. Get your pen out. There are some really useful references that he makes during the interview. But don't worry, we have also included that list on our website. Today our talk spans the history of organising, what has stayed the same, what has changed and we also discuss the art of mentoring, reflection and growth when it comes to building teams of new and more experienced organisers. So, let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall, welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. Changemakers also produces episodes that are feature stories about social change campaigns. Changemakers is supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. Changemakers also runs an organising school where you can sharpen your skills to make change in the world. All the details are on our website, where you can also sign up to our email list. It's changemakerspodcast.org. Ernie Cortez, it is an absolute joy to have you on the Changemakers today. Welcome to Changemaker Chats.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: Excellent. And I, I want to begin. you pretty well known as an organiser. Indeed, you're probably one of the biggest names in community organising in the United States. We know that there's lots of different ways to change the world, but can you tell our audience a little bit about what is distinctive about the method of an organiser?
1: Oh, that's a toughie. Um, Because the best organisers are eclectic. They draw from different traditions, different Experiences different situations, so if, I would say to be really good at this work, you got to be, got to understand labor organizing, political organizing. You have to understand how to develop an enterprise, how to think like a businessman. You got to understand how to think like a detective, think like a doctor. Uh, uh, one of the there's a woman who's written a book. Can't remember her name now, unfortunately. I'm getting a senior moment uh on sherlock Holmes okay and she goes through a study in scarlet okay and the way is the, the different ways in which a, a sherlock Holmes approaches a crime scene versus a Scotland yard detective Strahd. he looks at the ground sees sees the carriage tracks you know looks at you know the fact that the carriage tracks are much heavier going to the to the crime scene than away from the crime anyway so he's attentive okay to all the particulars and makes those kind of connections so a really good organizer has that kind of disposition of a detective I learned early on that you have to also think like a really good investigative reporter so we used to read all the president's men Woodward and Bernstein's book on watergate and you know the kind of detective work that they did in order to get at you know where the where the, where the, where the decisions were where the money was going et cetera. so there is all this and you have to understand, you know how people think and how people learn and how people grow and so there has to be a little bit of understanding of brain science and 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 you know adult education so a really good organizer is draws from uh, you know a lot of different perspectives literature art uh, music i'm going on and on here so forgive me but we w- would do an organizers retreat and I'd ask the organizers to bring a poem or a painting or or a short story which kind of helped them grasp where they were, okay? And, you know, I used to love paintings by Diego Rivera or Jose Clemente Orozco, the Mexican muralist, but also love Tennyson's Ulysses. And so, you know, these are, you know, The Wasteland by Eliot. So you can talk about, you know, different dimensions of literature kind of helping to shape your perspective in this work. What it really comes down to is paying attention to people and really watching, and, and Christine Stevens, who was one of the greatest organizers I've ever dealt with, used to always focus when she was teaching people how to do an individual mini, she said, look at the person, watch them, You know, watch what they're doing with their legs, their body, their arms, et cetera. Look, pay attention to the person, okay? whenever she would do critique a young organizer, learning how to do an individual meeting. So that kind of embodies what I think is is, is, is requisite for a really good organizer.
0: You're sort of describing what we need to be in life. It almost feels like the, the, the way of being for a good organizer is the way of a good life as well.
1: I would hope so. In fact, you know, one of the things I've learned is that you can't search for meaning. You can, but what you can do is create meaningful work. And in the process of, being obsessive and being assistant and consistent about meaningful work, meaning will emerge. And so part of the question is how do we create situations which are conducive to meaningful work?
0: So this is a good segue. So Ernie, I'm interested in knowing how you found this kind of meaningful work and why organizing all the way back, all the way back at the start of your career, why this kind of work, this curious, attentive, Sherlock Holmesian style of work um, was of interest to you. Where did that come from for you?
1: It's hard to say. You know, I'm sure that my mother and my father had something to do with it, my aunts and my uncles. Uh, one of my cousins, uh, uh, Selena Francis Rios was her maiden name, but Selena Mullen is uh, her married name now. She was telling Christine Stevens that when we were young, we went to a swimming pool in the 50s in San Antonio, and uh, my cousin from uh, Mexico City, Maria Cristina, was with us. And her skin color is the color of this hat, black, ebony. In fact, my, her, her brother, Ramon, his nickname was Negro, which means black in Spanish. So uh, we're gonna go go swimming. We'd go swimming every, every day in the summertime. And the lady at the pool said that she can't come in because they had segregated the pools the 50s and i said what do you mean she can't come in she's my cousin we're, she's, we're all, we, we swim here all the time we're coming in. And she said no she can't come in." and the, my my cousin selena said you know she started screaming and hollering ernie they don't want us let's go home and i said no no call your mother tell her we're we're, we're not leaving we're staying here so we stayed there and i insisted that we you know that if she couldn't go in we were we weren't going to go in and if we weren't going to go in no one was going to go in we're going to let anybody in so they let us in
0: huh? wow I was not expecting that to be the result. So
1: <laughs> that was my first big action. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Fighter while young. How old are you?
1: How old am I now, or how old was I then?
0: No, no, not now. Then, then when you well, when you stage your action. Twelve. Wow.
1: And she's, you know, my cousin Selena describes. I would puff up like a throat, like a frog.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we well, had to be intimidating in some form.
1: <laughs> anyway. But growing up, you know, in San Antonio and uh, going to college at a place called Texas A&M, which was very racist, very segregated at the time, and uh, having to deal with, you know, just incredibly stupid arguments about segregation just infuriated me. So, I don't know, it's just when I started studying economics, started studying a little bit about inequality and income, I went back to my hometown and looked around and felt like maybe I got to do something there.
0: And so, what did you decide to do? I mean, you could have done anything in San Antonio. Well, I
1: first started with, I was, uh, I, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I remember in the 66, 1966, when I was still in, in school, in graduate school, uh, I, I got involved with the Farm, United Farm Workers, and mm. ran Farm Workers Boycott uh, uh, in Texas for a strike that didn't work. Then I, this is during the Vietnam War, and so I didn't want to go back to graduate school. My father had died. And, so a friend of mine who was a minister at a church in Beaumont, East Texas. So I went to work for an African-American church uh, and claimed that that was my alternative service to, yeah. know, and fought with the draft board for two years and they finally gave up on me. But uh, so I worked for that. And then so I, did as, I worked as, a, as an organizer, very amateurish organizing, but anyway, trying to do community organizing in Beaumont uh, and then I went from there to Colorado and worked with the United Church of Christ in Colorado. And then I came back around a community development corporation in San Antonio and did economic development and housing and work, manpower training and stuff like that, And, and, and but still kept my hand in political organizing. But I felt that that was not enough, and, and I'd always been reading about the IAF. When I worked for the farm workers, uh, I, I worked with a guy named Gilbert Padilla, who was the secretary treasurer of the United Farm Workers. And he taught me about Fred Ross and Linsky organizing. And so I decided that's what I wanted to do. So after doing the community development work for three years, I decided by 1971, I got on a plane to Chicago and met with Ed Chambers in 1972. I was doing a a tryout in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and then Lake County, Indiana. And then I went back to San Antonio to start the organizing in, in San Antonio, which became the COPS organization.
0: Yeah. And we're going to come back to some of these stages, but I want to ask one more question before we move into the how you've done organising because you haven't shifted since, you know, 1971. You have been an organiser, which means that you've got an extraordinary set of stories to share with us. But I want to ask, you stuck with it, right? Like there's one thing to try it and then go, oh, that's interesting. It was as interesting as community development or the mobilising I did with the farm workers, but you've stayed with it for 50 years, right? For, for over 50 years. Why? Why is it so tantalizing? Why is it so important to you to this form of organizing, this form of work?
1: Well, as you said, up to now, and hopefully in, in the future, there's a lot of meaning that I get out of this work.
0: Talk to me about that meaning. What is it that organizing, you know, how, how does it fuel you
1: Well, first of all, I have, have, uh, for all kinds of reasons, I have a lot of anger. According to the scriptures, anger is rooted in grief, sorrow. Uh, Nehemiah, when he comes back to Jerusalem, grieves what he sees, the desolation, the destruction, the scattered, the fact that the people are scattered. So he and Ezra come together and begin to build, to teach people how to organize So properly understood, you know, really good organizers uh, have a a cauldron of anger, which is rooted in grief, grief for loss of potential, uh, for all kinds of things that I underwent personally when I was growing up, you know, seeing people I cared about, mistreated, looked down upon, humiliated. My, again, my cousin Selena used to tell me that I used to, I I had a sister who was invalid and my friends would come over; they would make fun of her. And uh, my cousin told me, told a friend of mine that uh, I used to get a, I used to lose a lot of friends because so I get angry with them and fight with them over that. Anyway, so that properly understood, the the organizer is able to translate his grief, her grief, her sorrow, into constructive action. Uh, now that requires. The capacity to take that pain that, that Brueggemann, Walter Brueggemann talks about, you know, the, in his book Hope Within History, the necessity of taking your private pain and your in-coit pain and translating that into something which is public and coherent. And for me, that has brought incredible meaning, joy. Uh, as I told people once, I read all the stories in the scripture and I believe them. And they were important to me, so trying to connect them to what was going on growing up, what was going uh, going, up, going on in San Antonio made, made, was important to me. So anyway, I hope I'm being clear. And, you know, the work has given me an opportunity to be curious, to be imaginative in ways that I would have never thought of, to be curious about people that I would have never thought of. And the idea that I have permission... To have meaningful and interesting conversations. Well, I mean, yesterday I had Monday, rather, Excuse me. I met with the Archbishop of San Antonio, and he, you know, he got intrigued with the idea of my doing work with his parishes. I met with uh, potential organizers, and the idea of mentoring them and enabling them to grow and develop was joyful, and made me want to read some stuff about. Intelligence. Maybe want to read stuff about how institutions work. Maybe want to read stuff about what makes public sector not work and how do you make it work? Okay, uh, so all these things just uh, are part of the work. I mean, give me joy in this work. Uh, I, we do a, uh, in our training, which you've done and, and have gone undergone and not done before. We do the Malian Dialogue, which comes out of Thucydides' The Peloponnesian Wars. And we have people play Malians and Athenians and. But then we look for, I look for things in contemporary history, which parallel the dialogue. So there's a wonderful chapter in a book called the Eisenhower Era, written by a guy named Hitchcock, which talks about the Suez conflict. So I have organizers read that and I say, who are the Malians in the the story, and who are the Athenians? And the Malians are the the British and the French, because they think they can get away with this plot to overthrow Nasser, okay? okay, with the Israelis, and the Athenians, Eisenhower is the Athenian in this particular case, because he stops in coal. And they have, they have thought through carefully the endgame in this whole, the Suez Crisis, okay, in 56, over the canal. And so anyway, so, that, so there's, there's another book written called The Island at the Center of the World, which talks about the negotiations that take place between the British and Peter Stuyvesant, who is the... The equivalent of the mayor of New Amsterdam, and Peter Stuyvesant wants a theocratic state, like, like, ironically, like, is in New England. But the people of New Amsterdam they want a much more pluralistic, much more open society. So they go, they go around Peter Stuyvesant and negotiate with the Duke of York, and New Amsterdam becomes New York. And Peter Stuyvesant's own son is part of the deal, the group that makes the deal with him. But anyway. So that's another example. Peter Stuyvesant is the Malian. He's rigid. He's ideological. Uh, won't negotiate with anybody. Okay. So we go through different historical. I look for is there different historical examples of people operating like Malians, ideological, rigid, and operating like Athenians. Okay. Nelson Mandela is a great Athenian. He's willing to fold in. Okay, the Afrikaners. Okay, make them feel like they're a part. So we have organizers read, a playing a book called "Playing the Enemy," which was now been renamed "Invictus" after the movie, which talks about and uh, Mandela's negotiation with the Afrikaners and making, wearing the soccer uniforms, which were so dear to the to the white South Africans, et cetera. Anyway. So that these examples in history, whether it's Mandela or, or uh, Angela Merkel uh, or uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln who operate like Athenians and just looking for examples of people who are willing to exercise power judiciously and carefully and, and, and with discipline. And imagination. I don't know if I'm...
0: No, no, no. So what I'm hearing is that um, in addition to being able to provide a space for managing anger in the public realm and being curious about others and grounding yourself in the relationship with others, that for you, one of the joys of organizing has been being able to understand uh, a more judicious and creative way of of exercising power and teaching that to others.
1: Yes. You said it better than I did. Okay. Uh, Thank you. For organizing my thinking, okay.
0: <laughs> well, we're in conversation, mate. That's how it works.
1: <laughs> but yes, so, that's uh, exactly right. Teaching people how to both acquire power, sustain power, and maintain power in creative and judicious and interesting ways, okay, which demonstrate a tenacity, demonstrate a really strong ego, such that you are willing to be inclusive. Yeah
0: with power with the powerful f- phrase
1: yes power with okay, not power over we teach the distinction between unilateral power which is power over and relational power which is power with and you know relational power it centers it creates it, it we talk about it having size because you become bigger you know you, you become larger as a res- because you incorporate the other into yourself your personhood grows okay
0: anyway Yeah, so I want to shift the conversation to talking about the Industrial Areas Foundation, for which, you know, since 1971, you've been a a huge leading figure. Indeed, you're probably one of the the most experienced organisers standing around still organising, and it's a joy for me to be able to talk to you about organising and the practices of the Industrial Areas Foundation stretch back a long time, as as you describe reading about Saul Alinsky and Fred Ross. We still read about them, right? Like we still read about about those organisers, and they and their work runs through all the way to today into the work of the the West Southwest Region of the Industrial Areas Foundation, which you created and and have led. So I think that a lot of our listeners will be interested in your reflections on that history to be able to be able to discern and understand what has remained historic and what has lingered in the practice of organizing because not everything that Alinsky said or did is the same as what the Industrial Areas Foundation say or do today. So it's been over 80 years since just since the Industrial Areas Foundation formed and and more since the back of the Yards neighborhood council in Chicago. When you look back as an experienced organizer, how do you interpret that history what is what is of continuity in the industrial areas Foundation and what has changed?
1: well uh, understanding the realities of power have always been part of the of the tradition of IAF the industrial areas Foundation and you know constantly going back to that you know that we that uh, I think Martin Luther King, quoting Tillich said, power without love leads to brutality, but love without power leads to sentimentality or something along those lines. So understanding the, if you will, the tension between power and love. We we teach people that the, to really understand something, you have to understand it's exact opposite. And the exact opposite of power is impotence, okay? Powerlessness. And so uh, Gamble points out that uh, you know, there's totalitarianism reduces people to passivity, but there are also this is this quiet desperation that's coming out of a market society, not a market economy, which relegates people into individualism, separates them, makes them different, apart from each other, and so they retreat into themselves and become self-absorbed into their own victimhood and their own passivity. And understanding that in order for people to be fully human. have to understand their interests understanding the word interest comes from the latin word interesse to be among or between so understanding that was there they're among or between that that was there connected to their families their neighborhoods and deliberation about those things which are their interests is how aristotle defines politics and so that politics is about arguing negotiating being in conflict with struggling for power around family property and education but as Paul Francis said to Donald Trump, that's part of being human. If you're not a political person, you're not a human. You're not fully human, rather. Right? And so the part of the so one of the challenges is we organize people around their interests. We organize them for power. And we build broad-based organizations, organizations of organizations to do that. Now that hasn't changed. That's been around for 80 years now. How we think about those institutions. How we understand the character, the leadership, the transformation of leadership, I think that has been deepened. How we think about culture, how we think about power, that has been deepened. How we think about relationships, that has been deepened. How we think about politics, that has been deepened. Okay. And uh, every IF organizer has to virtually memorize. Bernard Crick's book in defensive politics. I've read Gamble's book, Politics and the Fate. Okay. Understand Max Weber's, you know, politics as vocation. Okay. So that you, there has to be a, a fairly complex, I don't want to say rich, deep, complex understanding of politics. And we teach that very, 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 very hard. And so I think that's changed uh
0: Talk to me about that. So one of the things that happened in the late 1960s, early 1970s, was the development of, of national training. It didn't start off as calling it national training, but the role of training. How did that change the work of the Industrial Areas Foundation?
1: Well, much more systematic, uh, much more deliberate. You know, one of the good things that Chambers did when he started national training was he gave us a lot of space to develop different sessions, uh, so, you know, wh- about whether it's about culture, whether it's about decision-making, about leadership, uh, you know, there was there was space to kind of uh, create different dimensions to this. So, I spent a lot of time thinking about the, what are the qualities of leaders as you emerge. In. And I invested heavily in thinking about anger and humor, being able to do dialectical thinking, being able to... Know, reading R- Randall's essay uh, no, virtue of being on principle understanding the importance of negotiations of compromise okay uh, so that you look so that you look for leaders who are curious and imaginative so that you look for these different qualities and how do you cultivate these qualities and that, you know understanding that intelligence emerges out of relationships okay you're not you're not intelligent by yourself you're, you're intelligent with other people and the most intelligent people are people who are connect so being free uh, to be able to to really think hard and broad and and being imaginative about these qualities was something which I really relished. In, okay, because it also helped me think about myself. Okay, I've got you know three children and four grandchildren. Okay, and what kind of grandparent do I want to be? What kind of parent do I want to be? So you know these so the, the, those things which were both gave meaning and enriched my life. Thinking about institutions and the role of institutions was something which I have enjoyed and wondered about, okay, and how one one of the big challenges we have now is people don't understand institutions, they don't believe in them, they don't think they're important. And because of that, you know, our politics is much seriously disrupted and seriously undermined. Because if you know if there's anything to understand about American politics, it's it requires institutions. It was, uh, De Tocqueville talked about that in his book, Democracy in America, the importance of institutions. Uh, there's a, if you anybody who studied the New Deal uh, and the you know, the TVA understand the role of the, that that institution played. Okay. Anybody who studies you know what happened in central Texas, the transformation of, 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 of the economy of central Texas. As a result of rural electrification and the creating of institutions, knows the importance of institutions. So, and not just governmental institutions, not just corporate institutions, but what Crick talks about, we need extra parliamentary institutions to mobilize consent. And thinking hard about how do we create those extra parliamentary institutions has been a real source of curiosity, energy, intellectual energy for me.
0: So, the IF is, is famous for its work with. Congregations and, and and civic institutions, just as you describe. One of the things also that you have done in the IAF is create a network of the Industrial Areas Foundation, particularly in the West Southwest, where it started with one organisation, COPS, in San Antonio, and it's now spread. There are 29 inst- institutions of institutions, right? These,
1: at least, that many. I think at I least that many. At least
0: that many. At least that many. At least that's what you say your, on your website in case it's not updated recently. At least 29, probably more, um, because probably updating on the website is not the most important thing to be doing. But what I am interested in is how you have, with all the knowledge that that you have had about working with an individual institution, what ideas and thoughts did you then bring to building networks of institutions of institutions, i.e. to to building the West-Southwest network? What thoughts, reflective practice, mentoring, support did you bring into that space?
1: Well, two things come to mind, maybe three. One is I really like working with younger organisers, okay, and I've learned... I think, how to be halfway useful to them. I I keep telling them, I will stay in this work as long as my health is okay. As long as I'm creating some value added, I'm useful to you. And three, as long as I'm not blocking your growth and development. So I regularly check in with them and say, how how am I on two and three? One, I I, I check with my doctor and my wife. On my health, okay, mental and psychological and physical. But, uh, but so the question for me is, you know, how is this conversation useful to you? How is it interesting? How could have it been different? So what, I'm not sure what, where where that comes from, but there is this incessant in, insistence on my part for critique. But I always tell people one of the things that Linsky taught us early on was that the price of constructive criticism is a creative alternative, and so therefore, you know, it's not enough to critique somebody; you got to come up with. Well, what could I have done differently? What could we have done differently? How should we have conducted this meeting in a different kind of way? One of the things that has always been part of IF culture is the iron rule: never do for anyone what he or she can do for themselves. And really, under, fully understanding that, how the iron rule is not just is, does not mean neglect people; it means think of creative ways to enable them to grow and develop, but give them the space. To learn from their experience give them the space to make mistakes to learn how to have the sense of humor that you know maybe you could do it better yourself but then that doesn't help anybody grow and develop okay so toward that end uh i've tried to help organizers learn how to be curious imaginative thoughtful how to dig deep into these institutions and then the other other thing is i've brought in tried to bring in a Number of scholars, okay, to do seminars just like we did with your chap, okay, uh, on the book Out of the Ordinary, okay, and we're doing another one with uh, Charles Goodhart, who wrote the book Hands, Hearts, and Minds and the Road to Someone, okay, and that's going to be coming out pretty soon. And uh, we're going to do, be doing one with a woman named Sh- Sedja bin Habib uh, on immigration, but she's also an authority on Hannah Rent. And then there's a woman named Tamara Eskenazi, who's a scripture scholar, writes on Ezra. And the MIF. so we're trying to bring together Danielle Allen, talked to us about the, you know, inoculation, the COVID, the COVID pandemic. My good friend who just passed, Robert Moses, who taught us about the Civil Rights Movement in Mississippi. So bringing together these kinds of people to engage with the organizers for for, for two hours, three hours. We used to do it for two days, but right now we can't because we're not in person. So that has been an innovation, which I think I was part of creating. One of the things the organizers have told me is that those those have helped them stay in this work because it it helps them be more reflective about what they're doing. And then the third thing is creating what we call, I call cohorts of organizers. And we have now about seven cohorts of uh, uh, organizers at different levels. Some who are very, very experienced, and then some who are just starting off. and we have a regular meeting of potential organizers or people who are not even organizers. So the job of the organizers is to go out and recruit people and look for people and then have them come together regularly and have them read uh, Orwell or Crick or uh, Anorette, okay, and uh, have them then interpret that, okay, and spend four or five hours with them doing that, kind of seeing who looks interesting and who we might want to give a try out to. then raising the money, for those tryouts has been a big deal, uh, uh, so that the organizations don't have to pay for uh, those tryouts. I don't know if that answers. Is that
0: responsive? I want to ask another question on this, if that's all right. No, oh, no question. question but is, is that
1: was, was that responsive? Though?
0: Yeah, you know, you answered you answered the, the the question that I was asking. Thank you about about how you build an institution and what I and what I got out of your answer is that you that there's an incredible amount of relational work yes. in building what you've learned to build. There's relational work one to one. You've described it with the young. Young organizers, in particular, where you're building a relationship. There's a there's critique in that relationship, but it's constructive. It's drawing out of them a leadership capacity, but also there's space. So you're not telling them what to do. Just like your experience in writing the national training in the 1970s, where you got to write a piece about qualities of leaders. You're giving people space to to be creative on their own, as well as being in relationship. And then you're creating another space for people to reflect and think together, to draw on and be curious about great writers, whether they're modern or, or, or less modern, to be able to think about politics. So lots of people do re- reflection, right? Like I know lots of organisations that do send out readings and then people read them and they come together and they chew over them. And there is a great – there is a, a continuum about how people in organisations do that kind of reflection – One is where on one extreme people do the reading and then there's like it abates to nothing, right? It's just a reading and that's nice and everyone goes on their way. There's also another... End of the continuum where it's not seen as productive unless lots and lots of actionable ideas are drawn out of the reading to be put into practice the next day. I'm not suggesting that either of those extremes are particularly useful. Mm-hmm. How do you create a space like what when you think about creating a you know a two hour five hour reading group for your top organizers? This is important, really huge allocation of time. What reaction? What end product are you seeking out of that action?
1: Well, let me give you an example. We just there's a group we call Group Three, who are the organizers who have just become leads and have spent less than five years as leads, okay? And they were reading Orwell's Inside the Whale and uh, Andrew Gamble's book, Politics They were given the readings assignments. And then they were asked, we're gonna spend the first hour, hour and a half, 12 people doing rounds. And the rounds question is, how has a reading helped you do a relational meeting, reflect on a relational meeting, understand a relational meeting and give examples from the text.
0: Right. So you're applying it to practice. So
1: each organizer then has to talk about the, you know, and then be critiqued about, are, are they really connecting the text, the specific part of text to a relational meeting? And they're free to say the text was useless. They're free to say the text is boring. They're free to say the text is, I'd rather have read something else. Or I didn't understand the text. Okay. So we spent, very i thought engaging hour and a half doing exactly that then they were asked to do a presentation on different parts of the text okay so they took the the gamble book and and we had four chapters in it and we had three five people assigned to each chapter and they had to do a presentation on how that particular chapter one chapter which talked about fate another talked about the end of history uh, another type we're talked about Fukuyama's book, The End of History. So they had to ask, well, how does this connect to what I'm doing? Is it useless? Is it useful? Is it interesting? Is it boring? Is it tedious? Okay. And how would you construct a training session for three minutes off of that?
0: Nice. That's a very helpful description. I'm finding that helpful for my own practice. I <laughs> hope the listeners are finding it helpful too. Right. I can see how you're making it very concrete to practice. I think sometimes in reading groups, it can get loose. And uncertain as to what to do with these interesting readings. But I think that using them to be able to refine our practice in very concrete ways, like you're describing, that could be very helpful. Obviously, it is for you.
1: <laughs> and so, you know, then you got to do, you know, you got to do a, a three minute training session inside of an individual meeting, a five minute training session inside a house meeting, a 45 minute training session inside of research action, so that you learn how to take the texts and connect them to what you're doing. Yeah. And we don't always do it well. We don't always do it well. But to do it well, you got to get really concrete and specific about a relational meeting or a house meeting or a training session or a research action and connect that to the text.
0: Yeah.
1: Big hey, text, okay? I, I know we're being successful when people who can relate to a text that they read two years ago to what's going on today with the text that they're reading now. So one of the organizers uh, who, who has really kind of surprised me many ways, Anna Ng, you know, she has incredible remem- remem- remembrances of experiences with reading Henry James, The Portrait of a Lady, or reading uh, Crick, or reading uh, Gamble, or reading Anna Rent, and she can relate them. Was, and, you know, what Joe Ruby was just now taking over, was saying, you know, that they got to have a Arendt's essay on Lessing in their back pop- pocket. When they talk about relational meanings all the time, well, the fact that these things now are part of the conversation, and you really can't be, if you will, part of the conversation, if you have not read these different texts. So people are scrambling if they haven't to read them now. Uh, so, for example, one of the books that we read, the, the last chapter is on Othello, and this one organizer and I particularly likes Othello. So we're now thinking about taking Othello and reading Othello together and see, because to me, everybody has to understand Iago.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's very useful, sadly.
1: And if you don't understand Iago, okay, you'll always be pseudo-innocent and naive, and you will always end up on a short end of life. There's so often is a Iago in a
0: negotiation.
1: Where is the okay. Iago and where's the Iago in you, okay? And who, who is deeply resentful, and his resentment is so corrosive that it's so destructive of his marriage and his friendships with everybody, and you know ends up innocent people being killed and destroyed. But he, no matter, he's because he's got his revenge. Uh, his his over his his being passed over, his being overlooked, his being humiliated, okay. His own mind. So, where are the Iago's, the desperate characters, and how do we find them and how do we avoid them? How do we we deal with them?
0: See, reading is useful, organizers. Reading is incredibly useful.
1: (laughs) So, anyway, so I'm I'm always looking for characters and literature and and ideas and philosophy, notions and psychology, historical experiences whether it's Cesar Chavez or Martin King or Bob Moses or Ella Baker. It's important for people to know who Ella Baker was. Okay, She taught Bob Moses about organizing. She taught at the Highlander Institute. She taught Rosa Parks. She taught the SNCC workers. It's important for people to know who Diane Nash is Okay, and head of the Freedom Riders. And there's a movie, there's a documentary called Eye on the Prize. And the best part of it is Robert Kennedy is attorney general asking Burke Marshall, who in the hell is Diane Nash and why do I got to talk to her?
0: That's what we all need.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so the idea that the attorney general feels like he's got to talk to this woman that he thought was a nobody, to me, that's, that's what organizing is about, okay? How do, you, how do you make people seem ordinary? How do you get power people to recognize that they're not ordinary, they're extraordinary people?
0: So I want to jump to now. Ernie, and just ask you a question about the IAF today. Sure. You know, we've we've talked about you know how you you and others helped build a a training program, a, a reflective culture, lots and lots of broad based. Organisations across the country. The IAF has changed more. Still, you know, it's become centred in big urban networks, like in Los Angeles and Chicago. It's spread its wings. It's gone overseas. It's gone to the United Kingdom. It's gone to Canada. It's come to Australia. Awesome. What, what do you think of this? Of this big, large, interesting creative network now, right now? What's your reflections on the IAF today?
1: Well, you know, um, I feel both proud and sad, okay? Proud of what I've been able to do and continue to I mean, I, I spend a, a lot more time than maybe I even should, although they, they'll, they'll cringe if they hear me say this with the people in Vancouver. And because I'm, I'm supervising the development of a sponsor committee in Vancouver, but enjoying it a lot, okay? Uh, being with, you know, a whole different crop of folks, uh, I think I've met with, the, I've done one-on-ones via Zoom with about 50 leaders from Vancouver Alliance, uh, helping them raise the money for a sponsor committee so they can hire an organizer. Getting inside of Canadian polity and history has been very interesting. If we ever get this pen over this pandemic at last, I'd like to do, try my hand in Spain.
0: Nice. There's interesting stuff in Spain already.
1: Yeah, I love Spain, and so I want to be there for a while. Uh, my wife and I have been there 15, 18 times. So, you know, just thinking about Spain is intriguing. So, you know, a lot more to do, a lot more to do. I also have to recognize my limitations, which is easy always to do.
0: Yeah. You know, we can always think about the alternate, alternate life lived, but actually the one that you're living right now is also not so bad, hey?
1: Yeah. So I'm enjoying... I must say, I, I, I think a lot about what I could have done differently, but I mostly enjoy what I'm doing now.
0: And so just final question, if you were to reflect on the greatest gift that you have, have received from your time as an organiser, what would it be?
1: It's hard to say. Uh, there have been so many poignant moments. I think of three people, maybe four. There's a woman named Irene Gonzalez when I was in Houston organising. She lived in uh, East Chicago, Indiana. And that was my first experience as an organizer. Didn't have a sponsor, a committee, didn't have any money. I just went in there and put something together. And she was the co-chair of that organization. And uh, she was a teacher's aide when I met her. She was an incredible leader. I really enjoyed working with her. And one day I got a call from another woman, I won't name I will not mention, and she demanded that I immediately stop doing what I was doing, leave Houston, come back to East Chicago. Now that I've made my reputation, in her mind, famous organizer, and help them rebuild it. And I must say, she got, got to me a little bit. You know, I felt, you know, maybe, maybe I shouldn't have left so soon. So I called Irene. What do you think about this? And she says, well, ah, don't worry about crazy so-and-so. As far as I'm concerned, you're Abraham Lincoln. You freed the slaves. Now, that was obviously hyperbolic, but it meant a lot to me then. It meant a lot to me then. And uh, when I was leaving cops in San Antonio, to go to Los Angeles, the president of the organization, Andres, said, I'll be to go out with me and just spend a whole evening with me. So we went to dinner and we went, so we go into this after hours place because he, 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 he doesn't want the evening then and it's just after midnight. And there's this guy who's later going to run for city council. And I won't mention his name either, except to say his name was so-and-so. And he's obviously drunk and just, Incredibly drunk. So he comes up to me and because he had known me before when I had done some other things, he says, You know where well, you did it, created a powerful organization. But then he looks at Andres Sarabia and says, When this guy leaves, cops will be through, be dead, be finished. Without him, you're nothing. And Sarabia says to him, You don't know what you're talking about. We don't need Cortes anymore. He did a good job, but we don't need him anymore. He's gonna go off and do some organizing somewhere else. You have to deal with us. <laughs> Anyway, I was really proud of Andy. I had the pleasure, the sad, very sad, tragic pleasure of speaking at his eulogy, his funeral, eulogizing him. And I remember the quote from Julius Caesar where Mark Anthony, where uh, Mark Anthony uh, uh, speaks over the the body of Brutus and says, of all, this was a man. The quote is much longer, but I, I can't recite it all. And, you know, what he was saying was, what I was saying was, Andy was a mensch. He was the kind of guy that you can always count on, always had your back. Alinsky used to say the difference between a liberal and a radical was the liberal hits for the door when the fight starts, and he never went to the door. He always was there backing you up, either in the back of you or on your side, always with you. And of course, then Christine Stevens, who taught me more about humor than anybody else, because she has such an incredible sense of humor. You could always recognize when I would get into my mad, as she called it.
0: Even calling it that was pretty audacious.
1: She <laughs> would say you're, you're into you're mad, and she would help me, you know, get to get the space and the, the distance and the humor to to get out of my mad and not take myself so seriously. But ultimately, m- my children, my family, were responsible for that. My daughter, Alma, once when Christine and I were into this heated discussion, she was sitting in the back seat. And she says, "Blah blah 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 blah."
0: blah. <laughs> <Cut> straight through. <laughs> so
1: you know, uh, what can I say? This is up to now. It's been a very good life.
0: Yeah. Or oh, what, what I hear is the gifts of the people.
1: Yeah. And one of the things that Christine taught me was that a really good organizer has to have the generosity of a teacher, and you're only as good as your capacity for being generous. And if you don't have that, you'll always be flawed, in which we all are. I I must admit, sometimes not to being so generous, not to being so grateful, but I hope with with the help of my family, I can always rise to the occasion.
0: Annie, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. We might do it again sometime, but thank you for sharing your uh, wisdom and experience of 80 years of the IAF and a life as an organizer with us. Thank you. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. Changemakers is produced by Lachlan Hodson. Our audio producer is Jules Wookerer. Our series sponsor is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all of our stories. And don't forget to take a look at our organising school if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of changemaking.